0: Dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends.
1: folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Associate Editor Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Associate Editor Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. Holy buckets, it's been a week. You it's know,
2: not over yet. <laughs> I know,
1: I know, but holy Carmen Miranda, it's been. So earlier this week... It's last it, Friday. Yeah, last Friday over the weekend, yeah. Tyson Fresh Meats and Holcomb. They they had a fire that started in their, their box their box portion of their facility.
2: <laughs>
1: Somebody asked me the other day or today, does that mean what I think it means? <laughs> it's where they build the boxes to put the meat in. <laughs> no, that's not what that means. <laughs> the box shop is not what that means. So, here's the deal, folks. Uh, Tyson Fresh Meats, they are a processing plant, a large processing plant in Holcomb, Kansas. They process only beef. So, if you're reading a Reuters story and there's a picture of Tyson chicken nuggets, just know that that was some... um, Somebody's an idiot.
2: Well, (laughs)
1: look, they... they I said it. Jenny didn't say it. (laughs) They grabbed the only file photo they had of Tyson products, and I get it. You know, you... Chicken and, and cows are often interchangeable in a lot of people's minds, but they are not the same, in fact, creature. <laughs> you cannot get poultry or you cannot get chicken from a beef. <laughs> <laughs> Better not. <laughs> I mean, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Um, we, we joke, but here's the deal. It was a punch in the gut to the cattle chain, um, especially here in Kansas, but across the United States. And to really put it into perspective, we ha- we'll have um, Kansas Livestock Association... CEO, Matt Teagarden, on later on in the podcast to really explain what this means for producers. But, Kayleen, you and I are just, uh, you produce beef. I'm a consumer of beef. Grew up raising cattle.
2: Well, every aspect of my life, essentially. I mean, we have cow-calf herds. We, My husband rides pins at the feed yard on the weekends. My sister works as a cattle clerk at a feed yard. My brother-in-law is a cattle hauler. Mm-hmm. We work for an ag publication that depends on the cattle industry, so So
1: to try to put this into perspective for those of you that may not understand what what one little tiny fire in one little plant in Podunk, Holcomb, Kansas can mean. They process, on average, about thirty thousand head per week. Now thirty thousand head, that's the size of what what did we figure out later on? We figured out it's the size of
2: I believe Ford County Feed Yard is 30,000 head, or at one time it was. It may be bigger now. So that's one feed yard. That's one feed yard's worth of cattle that go through one plant
1: every single week. That's yeah. 6,000 head a day. So think, you know, it's
2: like the little engine they could. Chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga, it, 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 right? Yeah. My sister, she's the cattle clerk, so she knows the cattle that come in the feed yard and the cattle that go out of the feed yard. And she says the pins do not stay empty very long. They will clean them out in the morning, and they will be full by that evening, usually. So we are constantly,
1: so at the plant, if you you work backwards, okay, so the plant has to have a steady source of cattle going through. Chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga, right? Well, then you have to have feedlots that are constantly supplying and turning over those cattle. Chug it, chug it, chug it, chug it, chug it, right? Yeah. Some of the animals, some of the calves that you guys are raising, Kayleen, those will go into a feedlot. Eventually,
2: yeah. Eventually.
1: So everything's all going smooth, 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 smooth. And then there's a penny on the tracks, and you have a problem. Yeah. This whole system, it's going like gangbusters. Everything's good until you have one fire, and it's a spanner in the works, and... And everything kind of, it's not grinding to a halt, but all of a sudden you've got 30,000 head of cattle that got to find someplace else. Yeah. And like we talked about today with Matt, I'm trying to lose weight. I can't keep my weight the same from day to day to day to day. You can't just hold me at this (laughs) constant weight. I am not a feeder steer, but I am a good gainer. (laughs) And those feeder steers, they've been bred to put on pounds. The more that we start feeding them out, you start getting a diminishing return on the food, on the feed that you're yeah. putting into that steer. So feed costs. But if you got to hold them at your feedlot until you can find a place to process them, you're paying extra
2: for a diminishing return on your investment. And you might be influencing the quality of the cattle, too, if you're trying to hold them off. I mean, right. they're not going to stay at that ideal condition mm-hmm. for very long. And what we mean by condition is
1: we know, I mean, we have the safest, most effective, most um, safest, most affordable food supply on the planet because of, of what we do and the knowledge that we have. We know almost to the date, feeder steers, um, precise time that they should go to market mm-hmm. because that's the optimal time for their muscle and their, the their fat, cover. fat cover and their content. That's going to be a juicy and better eating experience for the ultimate consumer. We know this because we have several decades, 70, 70 years or so, of feeding cattle under our belts. Yeah. Okay? We do it better than anybody else does in the world.
2: Absolutely.
1: So... This all kind of, you know, we're trying to explain this to folks. Now, if you're a, a regular listener and you are in the cattle business, you know all this, but you're going to start having questions from your friends and neighbors because they have no idea what the impact is. They may see that the impact is the employees of Tyson right now in, in Holcomb. Yeah, that's a that's a really big chunk of economic development there that's all of a sudden grinding to a halt. Yeah. Thankfully, Tyson has decided that they're gonna. um, They've committed to paying all of their full-time employees and their their part-time employees as long as they're working um, on cleanup and working on plant um, tasks. They're Mm -hmm. gonna get paid, so that money's not gonna disappear out of the economy just yet. And Tyson is rebuilding, you know, despite things that we've heard, but. We'll talk about more of that later on with uh, with Matt, um, later in the in the podcast. So we had that. Hmm. Then we had sorghum <laughs> slash wheat you. Kayleen, I got it right. <laughs> it's
2: only taken you four
1: months. <laughs> I know, I know. We had some really great speakers, didn't we?
2: Yeah, they were really good, and the crowds were, were nice, and the rooms were packed, so...
1: Yeah, thank you all who came out for sorghum slash wheat. You, um,
2: what was your who was your favorite speaker? I don't know. Romulo is always nice to listen to just because of the accent that he's got. But <laughs> the forage sorghum gal, Jordan Bell, mm-hmm. even though she was on video conference, it's she has such good information and she's easy to listen to.
1: You know, I really appreciate all of our
2: our extension folks that come out and do our events, whether it's Jordan or Romulo. I always like listening to the farmer panel too cuz bring in, them bring in their personal experiences into their mm-hmm. situations and their operations. It's always good to hear what's it, what everybody's doing.
1: So I might be biased because I was the MC, but I I enjoyed the farmer panel myself. Yeah. And it's not all about production things. I think we touched on some things in that farmer panel this year. It, and it wasn't overt, but it was it's been a challenging year, and at least two or three of them up there said it's been a very challenging time yeah. to be a farmer right now, whether it's markets or trade issues or just the weather, just the sheer fact that you've had to replant two, three times, and you just give up July 4th. <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's taken a toll on their psyches. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not the kind of guys that are going to stand up in the middle of a Phil Donahue show and and go, yeah, I got a problem and I need to help. I need help. Yeah. But they're not the only ones that have reached out or talked about it or even hinted at it. Here's the thing. If you hear a farmer hinting at something, that chasm is deeper than the hint. Oh, yeah. If I'm willing to say something along the lines of, you know, I'm having having a little trouble here in a quiet voice, That's a farmer scream. Yeah, that's a red flag. That is a red flag. But I'm here to tell you, if somebody is saying quietly, it's been a tough year, it's been a tough year. Yeah. So it's been a challenging week. You know, Kayleen, the same day as our sorghum growers and our wheat growers were gathering together for our U event, President Donald Trump said in a speech, and, and this is the quote that's out there, folks, Many car plants, they're coming in from Japan. I told Prime Minister Abe, great guy, I said, listen, we have a massive deficit with Japan. They send thousands and thousands, millions of cars. We send them wheat, wheat. And there was a laugh line. That's not a good deal, and they don't even want our wheat. They do it because they want us to at least feel that we're okay. You know they do it to make us feel good. So that was the the quote from... President Donald Trump in public and um, the wheat farmers, the wheat industry organizations are are not happy about this, Kayleen.
2: I could imagine they're not. We're going to bring on
1: uh, Chandler Gould, who is the uh, NOG, National Association of Wheat Growers, uh, Chief Executive Officer, and we're going to talk about this and other things that NOG is doing on behalf of wheat growers. but. I put it this way. My my father was a great wheat grower. He was a proud wheat grower. So was mine. And one of the things that he emphasized was we aren't just feeding our family. We aren't just feeding our neighbors or even our state or even our nation. We're feeding the world. America's wheat growers feed the world. Over the last 50 years, we have raised our... Demand for our wheat from Japanese consumers and, and flour millers—they they get somewhat like fifty percent of our exported wheat goes to Japan, and it's not based out of pity, but it's because they demand the quality.
2: Yeah,
1: and that quality comes from Nebraska wheat growers. It comes from um, guys in the Pacific Northwest that are dealing with weather concerns right mm-hmm. now.
2: So, I. I'm just going to put it out there. My dad is not a laugh line. Yeah, I agree. It's not a laughing matter. I mean, this is somebody's livelihood and somebody's history, somebody's family legacy. They've been wheat farmers for for years and years and years, and it's very disrespectful to say something like that. If you have any thoughts on the Tyson Meats fire or the president's comments about the wheat farmers, you can drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know. Or you can always call the office 1-800-452-7171. We welcome your cards and letters. <laughs> <sighs> this week's episode will bring you the stories you might have missed in the August 12th print edition. We'll have an extended interview with KLA CEO Matt T. Garden. Then, of course, we'll have the latest on the grain markets and we'll have some final thoughts. It's been a challenging
1: week across agriculture, we know. So thanks for riding with us on HPJ Talk. This week's cover story is from contributor Lacey Newland, A spoonful of resistant starch makes the fiber go down. So researchers have figured out how to increase the amount of resistant starch in wheat without sacrificing taste of the ultimate product. Bay State Milling is utilizing these plant traits to make flour and bread that consumers
2: will be able to buy soon. Inside we'll have a recap of our first cattle ewe speakers on page 3. On our Opinions and Editorial page 10, Editor Holly Martin writes about how small communities run better when everyone does their part, no matter how small. Seymour clearly writes about... the Made in America Day on the lawn of the White House last month. And Dennis Nunn, Lincoln, Nebraska, writes to share the benefits of the Nebraska Lead program to developing leaders in rural Nebraska. On pages 14 through 16,
1: we have updates from our all-aboard wheat harvest crews from the road, brought to us by John Deere, Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Unverfurth Manufacturing, and High Plains Journal. And for added photos, videos, and the popular combine cam, visit online at
2: Allaboardharvest.com. Our colleague David Murray writes about the InfoAg Conference and AgTech's growing pains on page 17. On the It's Your Business page, managing, managing editor Dave Bergmeier writes about Yates Center auctioneer Charlie Cummings winning the King of the Ring contest and $10,000 $10, August 3rd during Dodd City Days. And Jennifer brings us a report from the Fent 900 Series tractor unveiling at Lang Diesel Inc. in Garden City. Folks, if you
1: have a response to something you've read or heard, or there's a local topic that you want to bring to the attention of our readers and listeners, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. Or you can always call us at 1-800-452-7171. We want to hear from you. So Tyson fresh meats in Holcomb suffered a fire over the weekend and we're starting to see some effects on the cattle chain. We thought we'd bring on Matt T. Garden, CEO of Kansas Livestock Association to discuss what we know now and what cattlemen and feeders are thinking about right now. Matt, welcome to HPJ Talk. I'm, I'm really sorry that your first visit to our podcast is dealing with a, tuss, a tough subject like this, but let's start with what do we know of the situation right now and, and where do we stand?
3: Right now, the plant and uh, in Holcomb is not operational. I think Tyson is using the word "closed" indefinitely. I prefer to use "temporarily" because it it is clear. I think uh, Tyson has made this very clear that they intend to repair that facility and reopen it as quickly as possible. Uh, Some rumors about whether it open again or not. Some of those kind of things running around. So so just want to be clear about that fact that that they are in the process of assessing the damage, getting contractors lined up to repair that damage and get that plant back operational. We know that plant was harvesting somewhere in the neighborhood early on Monday and Tuesday pretty significant market response but uh, uh, yesterday and then and now again today uh, Thursday the market I think is coming to grips with the impact and, and we're seeing that at least in the future
1: market so talking about the market effects Kayleen you and I were just looking um, on ag Twitter yesterday there was some talk about what this might do for the markets
2: yeah there was a couple guys commenting on what the Packers are making hand over fist money is, and already. And what does this thing, what does this mean for KLA members and their constituents? We got people talking about all these prices and what's going on. And of course, KLA and NCBA are concerned about the trading going on on Monday and throughout this week. Were those concerns merited? We're hearing a lot of pushback from cattlemen that they're. Paying even greater packer margins after the fire. Can you talk about both sides of the topic, or expand a little for those that don't trade cattle all the time?
3: Well, yeah, I think you know. So, so we've got thirty thousand head of cattle that were that were supposed to go to Holcomb this week that can't. The market's trying to sort that out, and and. up cattle because
1: Bigger isn't always better when we go to a plant. There's a reason why we have target sizes. Yeah, and, and we just lose some efficiency on top of that. So those cattle
3: feeders are trying to optimize that, that marketing and maximize the efficiency.
1: So, so Matt, talking about um, you know working in the plants and things, do we have enough USDA inspectors? To even look at at these other plants and and located at these other plants to work an extra two days a week or an extra day and a half a week, is there a need there for more inspectors? Is there a way that we can bridge that gap, uh, and still ensure that we have the safest, most wholesome supply of beef on in on the planet?
3: Yeah, and that that's a key point to make that that we have to have inspectors in those plants. Um, we have to have graders in those plants, and that was one of the first actions can
2: This is all kind of going to trickle down to the consumer. What about the price of beef in the grocery case? Are consumers going to see the, any kind of effect as for their burgers they they're buying for Labor Day weekend, for example?
3: Yeah, it, you know.
1: So Matt, especially with the movement, now a lot of people forget we've got a strong trucking industry, our livestock um, haulers, our cattle haulers, you know, we're already having to deal with hours of service issues and, and that sort of thing. A lot of these cattle that were going to Holcomb were sourced out of Kansas. Those sources now have to go farther afield. So do we have enough livestock haulers to and enough hours of service? I mean, are, are we going to see some a need for some leeway in livestock trucking?
3: We think so, and, and that uh, I think was the, either the second or third action we took was to seek a waiver from the U.S. Department of Transportation on those hours of service rules. You know, it is clear we're cattle that were in southwest Kansas that would go to Holcomb. Now many of those will have to go to other plants, maybe plants in be as likely or more likely it'll be plants further away. And so uh, we're adding maybe hundreds of miles to the the transportation required to get these cattle to plants.
1: I just keep picturing thirty thousand head a day. Say I'm a, a listener and I'm driving along and I'm going past the the lookout over here at, at in Dodge City above what used to be winter feed yard.
3: Thirty thousand head, yeah, that that would be. Um,
2: oh, that might be.
3: That's more than yeah. half of the size of that
2: feed yeah. yard. Yeah. Fort yeah. county so feed is probably close to thirty thousand head. So that's. I would guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a that's a pretty healthy feed yard that mm-hmm. gets turned over a week. Yeah.
1: in one plant. That's a lot of cows. I'm, I'm just trying to think visually for, for folks that are listening and trying to put that together. But it looks like we're trying to cover all the bases as best as we can to make sure that there's as little disruption to the, the whole chain as possible. There's just going to have to be some some leeways, I guess. Matt, as we wrap up here, um, what else would you like our listeners or our readers to know about this situation that we haven't touched on just yet?
3: couple of things here. It is a few
1: so very much, Matt, for coming on coming on HPJ Talk today for KLA. Um, we hope to have you back again sometime uh, soon to talk about some other issues uh, that come down the road on a happier note and everything. And You bet. My pleasure. And folks, if you want more information about what's happening at Tyson and Holcomb, keep following us online at hpj.com, or you can always find more information in our print version every week. Well, welcome Chandler Gould to HPJ Talk, the Chief Executive Officer of National Association of Wheat Growers. Chandler, I can't believe we haven't had you on before this, but uh, thanks for taking the time to chat today. And let's just start off with the elephant in the room. President Donald Trump's off-the-cuff remarks about wheat in Japan this week. That kind of took some folks by surprise, didn't they?
4: It definitely did. You know, uh, I understand that the president, without uh, doing a campaign speech, but to uh, take the third largest commodity in the United States, and what I, I call the breadbasket commodity, and to pitch us under the bus in an offhanded comment just really shows a lack of responsibility. You, you're the president of the United States. You have been touting your strong support for farmers and ranchers. Uh, through the first campaign and through the first three years of his presidency. But this offhanded comment at a time when trade is so crucial and we export 50% of our wheat uh, was not only untrue because we have such, we do produce the highest quality wheat in the world, it just couldn't have come at a worse time.
1: And, and for those of you that are tuning in and you may have not understood the comments, um, it was... Uh, quote, many car plants. They're coming in from Japan. I told Prime Minister Abe, great guy. I said, listen, we have a massive deficit with Japan. They send thousands and thousands, millions of cars. We send them wheat, wheat, laughter. That's not a good deal. And they don't even want our wheat. They do it because they want us to at least feel that we're okay. You know, they do it to make us feel good. So Nog had a response on Twitter and other social outlets. Um, and That seems to be a way to get his attention. Have you gotten attention from the White House after that?
4: Well, um, we've gotten the attention of at least 101 retweets, and that was as of this morning. And you're right, you know, it's not my style or the weak rower's style to, you know, fight or make our statements on on social media. That's just not the way we do our business, but it seems to be the only way to communicate uh, with this particular president. And so we did tweet back and and also mentioned you know, the high-quality wheat that our U.S. farmers grow here in the United States, that the Japanese market is our number one revenue market with roughly about a billion dollars uh, of sales uh, each year, and the importance of, of high-quality wheat for that market. The reason Japan continues to buy our uh, wheat, even though we're starting to be at an economic disadvantage because we're no longer in the updated TPP, is because of our quality. And so... Uh, Again, I'll go back to, was it an off-the-cuff comment that he just said? Yes, but again, you said this in front of thousands of people, thousands of cameras, when we're right in the middle of a trade war, and wheat prices are doing nothing but ratcheting down every day.
2: So what are you hearing from members from this um, comment from the president?
4: You know, just on on the text messages and the emails and our social media platform, we have gotten nothing but praise. We've even heard from other commodity groups uh, and from some of their leadership and members, you know, thank you for standing up. Uh, and then I definitely have heard from our wheat growers, thank you for supporting us, thank you for making sure that the, the quality and how hard we work to produce a high-quality grain to be exported and for domestic consumption, and for basically just putting the stake in the ground of saying you can't come out and say that our farmers and ranchers are doing great when actually they are suffering and then to turn around and to take wheat and and to basically say uh, Japan buys it from us out of pity. And that's just very frustrating and it's very unheartening to have the rug yanked out from underneath you when we're really struggling in rural America right now because of our lack of international market availability.
1: Well, and let's talk a little bit about, we had a TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was ready to go. It protected our market share, our 50% market share over in Japan. Now I hear we're starting to lose market share to Canada and Australia to that Japanese market. Does this remark, have you heard through the grapevine? Does this kind of color our relationships that we've spent 60 or 70 years developing with with those buyers over there?
4: Well, it definitely does not help anything, and and you're exactly right, as the new TPP agreement is definitely putting U.S. wheat uh, growers at an economic disadvantage to our two largest export competitors, being Canada and Australia, who are already reaping the benefits by having stayed in the agreement when it was ratified, and they are seeing lower TRQs and lower tariffs on their wheat going into Japan. Right now, Japan has still... The U.S. has still maintained our 50% share of that export market, but we anticipate if we do not strike a bilateral with Japan to put the United States on level playing grounds with Canada and Australia, that we will lose or go down to about 23% of that export market. And again, as I said, the Japanese market is our number one revenue export market because of the demand for such high quality product coming out of the United States. And you mentioned this a little earlier, you know, with MAP and FMD funding, which is something we lobbied very hard for in the last farm bill. We have started, we, along with U.S. Wheat Associates, um, predominant, you know, to develop this relationship with Japanese millers goes all the way back to 1949. And then to turn around and and to make this comment that they don't even want to purchase our wheat. I mean, it it, it just, you know, we keep hearing this so much about how much we have support as farmers from this administration, but then we turn around and, and it's these offhanded comments. And you just have to sit down and, and, and think more of, had he taken that comment, I know my answers are getting a little long. That's had he okay. taken, said, you know, Japan sends us millions and millions of cars, and that's worth, you know, X billions of dollars, because I don't know the number. And we export to them, you know, X billions of dollars of agriculture goods. And of course, the number is going to be much higher, what we're importing from Japan, than what we're exporting. If the comparison would have been like that, then yes, you know, the president would have been right on target. We do have a deficit with, J- with Japan. But to insult the U.S. wheat farmer saying that we don't produce a quality product, I, that, that's really where the anger and frustration is coming from that I'm hearing.
2: Being a leader of this national commodity group, how do you walk the line of lobbying, education, and advocacy for your members? It's got to be tough in, in politics to do that sort of thing.
4: It is, you know, we have to have a, a lot of uh, meetings where we sit down and we literally walk through the policy, Well, especially like if we're gearing up for a farm bill or if it's at our annual meeting at Commodity Classic. Walk through the policy. We're a grassroots organization. Our, our members come to us, and, of course, to, through our uh, resolution process, they set the policy for the year. But then it's our job here in, in D.C. and at the National Association of Wheat Growers for us then to go back to our uh, policy committees and say, look, I understand that this is the policy that you have put in place. Uh, we will we will definitely lobby for it and push for it. That is our job. But it's our job to really outline what's realistic. What can we get done this year? Uh, what's going? What is the appetite in Congress to move different pieces of our of our policy as we go forward? So it's it's actually a dual side education program. Mm-hmm. We educate our board members on what we can reasonably think we can get done. You know, we also educate them on. You know, here's an idea that's really not going to float right now with this Congress. Maybe if you look at it from this angle, you know, we can move forward with that. And, you know, a lot of that can come around, sustainability or conservation or uh, uh, things along those lines are the hot topics now. But then you have to flip to the other side. We have now then go up to the Hill and have a major education campaign of educating new members of Congress, their new congressional staff, or or maybe some staff that just aren't familiar with the wheat industry and and the fact that we affect indirectly and directly 23 million jobs across the country. So um, not only advocacy is that NOG's main mission, but definitely education to our membership, education to the blockchain, and education to Congress and the administration. It's a fine line. But it's also a big line with a lot of information, and we've got a pretty small staff here, so uh, it's a good, it's a great job, and it's, it's a great time. and We really, really enjoy it representing our growers.
1: Well, with the time that we have left with you, because I know you're really busy today, but let's take a couple of minutes to touch on what Nog is doing to improve farmers' interest right now on the Hill. I mean, you know, what's what's really forefront on your minds before this, and will be forefront on your minds after this.
4: Well, right now, you know, our our main topic is trying to get USMCA passed and to continue to push forward on an expedited bilateral with Japan. Uh, Going back to those same reasons of why we need to be back on a level playing ground with Australia and Canada for that Japanese market. And really, if there was a way to get back into the TPP, that would be the best for us because Malaysia and Vietnam were two other very large potential markets for us. And the more international markets that we have, the better our domestic price is going to be. But it doesn't look like this trade war is going to end anytime soon. So the next most important thing we can be doing is making sure that we are implementing the 2018 Farm Bill as fast as we possibly can, working with the USDA to make sure those programs are rolled out in a timely manner. And then also in a manner that both the county offices and our farmers can get in there and quickly sign up and understand exactly uh, what's going on there. Then we're also going to be turning, now that we are done with the farm bill, and really looking at infrastructure and taxes, because we've got about two years here before we have to start working on our next farm bill again. And we'll be having our uh, fall board meeting uh, in November, and that's a good time for us to poll our membership of where they'd like for us to uh, set our priorities. And then also we are going through a strategic planning process this year, so really getting a lot of feedback from our growers to make sure that, them in priority order on the issues that are hitting them most in the wallet, but also just across the industry itself.
1: Well, I tell you what, Chandler, Kayleen and I were talking the other day. um, You know, we're both farm kids. My dad was a a wheat farmer before he retired from farming, and um, my dad's not a punchline. And our readers are not punchlines. And we appreciate the fact that Nog is out there standing up for him and, and making sure that people that don't understand agriculture and, and may not understand the impact that we have from the ground up on the economy of the United States, that they understand it after you're done with them. So thank you on behalf of my dad. I appreciate what you're doing.
4: Well, I, I really do appreciate that. And, and like I said, the comparison of what the president was trying to make Uh, was a, could have been done much better and it would have had a much larger impact. But you're exactly right. When he said wheat and then there was laughter and then he continued on, it was, it it was just disheartening to sit there and and to listen to that. And in my 20 years of working in Washington DC, 11 on the Hill and then uh, 9 off working for farmers, I don't think I've ever actually had a president uh, make such a, kind of like you said, make, make, make wheat or agriculture a punchline in a joke, whether it's in a campaign or not. And I sat here and thought with my team, should we respond? Because I don't know that I want to respond on Twitter. Again, it's just not really our style, but I couldn't let it pass. I felt that he ran our commodity in the ground, and he insulted us when I know that we produce a high-quality product, and I just couldn't let it go by and I've been very fortunate. All the feedback I've gotten uh, has been very positive, uh, similar to what you just said about you and, and your dad. And I'm glad that we can be here to support you. And that's our job. And we will continue to do so.
1: Well, thank you, Chandler. And hopefully we'll have you on HPJ Talk later um, when we have some wins in the trade arena that we can um, shout from the rooftops when USMCA is passed. And, and um, keep fighting the good fight up there on the hill, okay?
4: Most definitely, and thank you for inviting me onto your show today, and I look forward to being back sometime soon.
2: Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Ag Resources as of August 6th. Corn was down at $3.90. Wheat was down at $3.74. Milo was down at $3.35. And soybeans were down at $7.17. Next week's print issue of High Plains Journal is our wheat issue with a story from Jennifer Latsky. Be sure to watch for that in your mailboxes August 19th and look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on places like iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. We're also on Instagram. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again for riding along with
1: us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy
2: is everything. We'll see you on the trail. This has been a production of High Plains Journal, all rights reserved.
0: Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of my day. Life is for me